Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from the Horsham Church of Christ. For more information, please visit our website at www.horsham.org.au. Thank you, Father, for your love. May we be mindful of your love, not just in this moment, but in the days ahead. May you continue to minister to us and through us, in us, through your word. May we become alive to what you want to say to us and lead us into. In the name of Jesus, amen. I would invite you to uh, consider practicing that over the days in between Sundays uh, throughout the course of the week, knowing that many of us will have full schedules. We all know that's a reality. Uh, Find a couple of minutes in your day, just as you go into lunch or just as you come out of lunch or um, just in a quiet space, even if it's only 30 seconds that you get to practice it, just to stop and to be still and recognise the presence and the grace and the love of God wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, whether you're online with us or in the house, our theme has uh, been somewhat difficult. I know there's been a sense of heaviness as we've discussed and explored what it looks like to journey through the wall or dark night of the soul. Um, And then last week, uh, enlarging our soul through grief and loss, something that Carlton supporters would really understand after last week. Um, Just saying, I'm noticing the scarves aren't being worn today, so... Um, um, anyway, uh, whether you journey through the wall or enlarging your soul through grief and loss, uh, both are invitations uh, to the beauty, the healing and the wonder of God. Uh, whether you're going through difficult moments, uh, whether the difficult moments seem overwhelming and this overwhelming darkness seems to uh, just take over our lives, they're actually invitations and moments where we can discover the beauty and the wonder and the healing of God. So today though, recognising the heaviness that's been there, we're going to uh, unpack, explore, discuss something a little bit more controversial and something that might cause a bit more of a stir for you. I don't know if you take me seriously when I say that or not. Um, and I say that because this, this topic today, it actually challenges our sense of importance and it actually challenges what we value. And we've called it today, learning to breathe the air of eternity. Learning to breathe the air of eternity, otherwise participating in the Sabbath, participating in the Sabbath rest and the practice of daily office. The writer of Ecclesiastes wrestles with this uh, idea in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes simply means the teacher. So when you see Ecclesiastes, it's the teacher. I, in chapter 3, verse 10 following, I have seen the burden God has, God has laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. And I, lo- I love this verse. He has also set eternity in the human heart. He's also set this concept in the human heart that actually there's something much bigger happening here. There's something much more expansive than this moment. As much as we're encouraged to be in the present and engaging with what's happening at any given moment, there's actually something much more expansive that God has laid within us. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good work while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. 
I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. God does it so that people will fear him. When Andrea and I were first married, uh, we didn't really have much need uh, for an answering machine. In fact, Andrea was uh, very strongly opposed to answering machines when we were first married. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you're a motor mechanic and you work, you know, 8 till 5, 5.30, you're not really in need of an answering machine either. You know, I didn't get a lot of phone calls. I didn't. You might have, Tim. Um, uh, you still do, I know. But uh, you don't get a lot of phone calls uh, after hours, when I, in the kind of field that I was in, working at SF Motors in Ballarat. Um, and so, you know, we didn't really have necessity for it. We were able to sit down, enjoy our meals, uh, nothing terribly dramatic. Even when we moved to college, uh, moved down to Melbourne, there wasn't really a need for answering machines. There wasn't really a, a need to have that expense or have that interruption or that um, in our lives. We were, we were quite content. Um, and then when we started having children and when I start, uh, started student ministry, my first student ministry was in Greensboro while we were living in Chadston. So it was a half hour drive between those two places. Um, and then in Baronia for my final year. Um, and I tell you what, we could guarantee. Now, we were also very oh, strict might not be the right word. No, it might be the right word. Um, that. Uh, our dinners, our evening meals were at between 5.30 and 5.45 when we had young children. You, you know, you understand this. Those of us had young children, don't we? Yep. Um, and then, but sometimes and occasionally throughout the week, Andrew and I, we'd have um, what, you know, date night or we'd think, oh, let's get takeaway. So we'd feed the kids um, something completely very healthy um, and put them to bed quickly. Um, and then we'd sit down or I'd go and get the takeaway and we'd sit on the lounge room floor, set up the picnic rug, watch a movie, all those kind of things. Now, and it wouldn't matter at times, and it was in a week, whether we had tea at 5.30 or whether we had tea at 7 o'clock, the phone would ring. It was inevitable. More than once a week when I started my student ministries, the phone would ring, and it wouldn't matter what time we had. We could have tea at 5.30, we could have tea at 8 o'clock at night, thinking we'd have a special night, and without almost fail, the phone would ring. Well, we got an answering machine pretty quickly. We got an answering machine pretty quickly. Now, the thing was, Andrea was happy to let the phone ring. It'll be fine. If it's that important, they'll ring back. Me, I was a student minister. I'm meant to answer the phone, yeah? You expect to be able to get in touch with your minister, don't you? Um, now, just to give you the heads up, if you want to talk to me now and you don't leave a message on my, answer, on my f- mobile phone, I don't call you back. Oh, so there you go. That's how much I've learned in 20 years, 25 years. But I've learned a few things about phones, answering machines and our evening meals. Uh, the things that I learned is actually I'm not that important. Um, there's... There's things that, uh, and I'll come back to that a little bit, I suppose, but um, I'm not that important that I have to follow up every phone call. I'm not that important that I have to solve everybody's problems. And in fact, I'm probably not the only person who can solve their problem. Shocking, I know. And actually, most people that ring you up at 5.30 in the evening or 8 o'clock, depending on what time they've got hidden cameras so they can see when you're having your meal, um, 
It's rarely life or death. Rarely. I probably count on both hands how many times people have rung us up and said, someone is dying or has died precisely at our mealtime. Happens rarely. I also discover and continue to discover it's really easy to find my value in being needed. Sense of importance comes back because someone else needs me. Now I know you might not be like this, you might have all this sorted out. This isn't this is about me. I'm not asking for counseling, again, not asking for analysis, just sharing my journey with you through this emotionally healthy spirituality. This is my story. I'm talking my eye language for those of us who are doing the course. Um, and what, what that does when I find my value in being needed, it creates a false sense of being full. It creates a sense that my life is full. Uh, responding to needs fills my life rather than uh, living a full life out of the knowledge that God holds all of eternity. Do you get the difference? Can you see the difference? We live a full life often thinking that we need this full life so we have some sense of value, that we have some sense of importance, that other people need me so my life gets filled. And yet we've created this false sense of fullness in our own lives. On the one hand, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, might sound a little bit miserable. He says, nothing can be added and nothing taken away from everything that God does. That can seem a little bit... Um, blasé or despondent you know we can kind of get to this point where we go well what's the point then if nothing can be added nothing be taken away we're just wasting our time our life is meaningless all that and that's actually the journey and the story of the teacher the ecclesiastes but what if this sense that nothing can be added or nothing taken away from what god does is actually a rich gift for every single one of us if God has placed eternity on the heart of every single one of us, given us the capacity to do work, enjoy life, toil and be satisfied, recognising that it's a small part of what God has placed within us, what an incredibly rich and deep and fulfilling gift if we're willing to receive it. Because we're given a work and the opportunity to shape and influence that one particular moment. But we're also given the opportunity and the freedom to hold that one moment lightly, recognizing that God is actually what God is actually shaping in us as much as what he is doing through us. But the problem is we often get so worked up and so fired up and so passionate and so motivated, motivated by what is happening around us and through us and what we can do that the work that God wants to do in us gets lost or squashed. The greater work, friends, isn't what we achieve, but the work that God wants to do in us. That doesn't mean we don't achieve anything, but the work that God does in us can overflow into a greater work out of us. The sadness is that we fill our lives without ever really being filled. And if you've been around the church for any length of time, we often talk about quiet times. Uh, we often talk about uh, these moments and we've often been trained in personal devotions. You know, it might be the begin or the beginning or the ending of the day, 
Maybe we'll read our Bible or, you know, until we get to Leviticus at least and then it all gets too hard and we put the Bible down. Or maybe we, in fact, ignore, ignore the Old Testament altogether or we get stuck in Revelation because, you know, the end times are coming. Um, so we want to get stuck into that because that's what we love and what we value. And we spend a few minutes in prayer. And the sadness that I've often heard and experienced from myself is that we get easily distracted and quickly frustrated. Because it's not quite working how we thought it would work or how we think someone else is experiencing it. We get into this notion of comparing how we think this should work. And firstly, that's why we call it a practice, because it's lifelong learning. But often we think about our quiet times in terms of getting something from God or doing something in prayer for others. Now that's not bad and it's not unhealthy and it's quite appropriate that we do that and participate in that. But it's not unhelpful. But we actually want to mature and go deeper. This is the whole point of this series that we're doing, to go deeper and mature in our faith and our relationship with God so that we can live out lives that are more fully alive. St. Benedict, um, one of the early church fathers, talk, talks about the daily offices or the fixed hour prayer you might have heard of or the divine office. Uh, and he says, this is not so much a turning to God to get something to be, but to be with someone. The word office comes from the Latin word opus or work. For the early church, the daily office was always the work of God. And I don't know about you, but I have a sense and a feeling that sometimes we've talked about the quiet times and the devotional times about somehow being good Christians. You know, we prove ourselves by doing this rather than the work of God doing something in us in these moments. Do you understand the distinction? Some of you do. The daily office, or call it, devotion or quiet time, whatever you want to call it, was always the work of God. And their daily office started at something like 3.30 in the morning or 4 o'clock with their morning prayers. And they, if you read anything about the early church fathers, the monasteries, they have, um, they have early hour prayers and then they go and have their meal or they'll go and have a bit of work and then the bell rings and everything just stops. Whatever you're doing, the bell rings, they come back for prayer. They go back to work. Um, six times throughout the day, they'll have this rhythm, this movement. They go out to work, they go out to community, the bell rings, they come back and they allow the work of God to happen in them. And this is what sustains them. Nothing was to interfere with that priority. Nothing was to interfere with the work of God in them. Stopping for the daily office to be with God is the key to creating a continual and easy familiarity with God's presence the rest of the day. If we were to be honest with ourselves, if we go about our quiet times, our devotions, whatever we've done, and fantastic, it's, and some of, some of you are just hands up. How many of you have been doing the same kind of daily, off, daily devotion every day for a number of years? You've got your rhythm. You've got your idea. You just do the same thing. Hands up. It's all right. I'm not, it's not a test. It's all right. Yeah, well done. How many of you kind of go through a few months or weeks and go, no, oh, this isn't cutting it for me anymore? It's okay. Don't be afraid. And what? So the rest are just doing nothing. Um, and that's, so that's the challenge. 
What does it look like to do our devotions with the mindset that now that I've done this, our quiet time with God, that actually becomes a place that I want to return back to so that I can continue to enjoy the presence of God in my daily routine. I've got a job. I've got expectations at my workplace or in my family. There's no doubt about that. No one's disputing that. But what does it look like for people of faith to recapture the, the idea that the work, the greater work, is the work that God is doing in us? And how do we train our children in that? How do we encourage and inspire and motivate our children to consider the work of God on an ongoing basis throughout the day? Because a relationship with God is not a tick box. And we might, see, we might look at this and we go, Simon, that's a bit far-fetched. It's disconnected from reality. You're talking about early church fathers. The world was different. It was a lot quieter. They live in monasteries. You know, they've separated themselves from the world. <laughs> Good point. And it's because we have disconnected from the reality of who God is and what he wants for us. Maybe they've actually got the reality of the world right. Most of us are too busy proving ourselves to have any time for God to do any work in us. So, you know, that's all a bit airy-fairy maybe. That's all, you know, early church fathers. That's several hundred years ago. Pfft. All right, some of you are going, show me some Bible, Simon. Fair enough. Okay. Psalm 119, seven times a day I praise you. Daniel 6, remember the story, some of us will know the story of Daniel, faithful servant, um, passionate follower of God, wanted to honour God with all of his life, served everything, was well regarded despite the fact that his nation had been taken in captivity. He went up to his room every day and he prayed three times a day and he kept doing it when there's a ruling made saying that he couldn't do it. He got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. John 15, uh, many of us, if you're reading through the Gospels, will know this. And some of your translations, this translation says, remain in me. Some translations say, abide in me. Be with me. Stay with me. Notice me. Pay attention to me. Because it's the only way you're going to get any fullness of life. It's the only way you will bear any fruit. Luke chapter 10, we've heard this verse a couple of times over the last few weeks. Talking to Martha, Jesus says, You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. And Mary, she chose what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And what was the better thing? To sit at the feet of of Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus encourages his followers, all who are hearing him, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me. When you're weary and when we're burdened and when we're overwhelmed in our workplace, in our families, in our relationships, is that the moment that we're actually invited to go to Jesus? To sit at his feet. Acts chapter 3 and chapter 10. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. 
And then in chapter 10, about noon the following day, as they were on the journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Now, that's, I mean, that, that story in Acts chapter 10, if you do nothing else today, go home and read that story. That is just a beautiful story of God at work. Because someone was faithful in their prayer and in the work that God wanted to do in them as much as through them. So which model do we want to follow? The author of Hebrews reminds the church that there is a promise of entering the rest that is in God through Jesus Christ. Now, as I look around the room, there's a lot of people, myself included, who have struggled in our lifetime and in our faith and our relationship with Jesus with the inability to find rest. And what does it look like for us to find our rest in Jesus? Pete Scazzaro offers four key elements of the daily office. And I'm, this is very broad. Um, Pete Scazzaro unpacks it very well. So there's four key elements of this. And it's not that we have to do it like the early church fathers or but it's about that we participate in the way in a relationship with Jesus because that's what we want to do. It's what we need to do. The first element is to stop. It's a good start. Put your work down, walk away from your computer, put your book down, whatever it is you do. Stop. Step outside the workshop. Stop. Get off your farm machinery. Stop. Your farm machinery just about operates without you anyway, so... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't. I know you work hard. It's okay. It's okay. Um, centre ourselves. Now, some people get a bit uncomfortable with that language, so let me, let me kind of help you a little bit in this. Um, direct our attention towards God. Pay attention to God. Recognise God in that moment. And it might simply be, Lord, have mercy on me. Be still and know that, I want to be still and know that you are God. It might be, um, thank you, Jesus. It might be, help me, God. <laughs> it might be, I want to receive your love. I want to know you. Direct your attention, our attention towards God and then just sit in silence, which I know is hard because as soon as we stop, as soon as we switch off all other external noise, we come up with all the task lists, all the things that have yet to be done, all the jobs that have to be done, all the hassles that we we're having before we stopped. And that's why we've got to have just one phrase, be still and know that I am God. Lord, have mercy on me. Show me your love. Just one simple biblical prayerful phrase that will help you centre and redirect your heart towards Jesus. A new scripture. And in this, it's not about time and it's not about comparison. It's not about, please don't believe I've got this worked out. I'm one of those people, I do something, I'm really excited, I find a lot of value from it and it lasts about four weeks and I go, meh. I've got to change my whole rhythm, my whole routine. Just little bit, sometimes just little bits, sometimes a whole lot. Sometimes I'm reading the Psalms and I'm really excited and passionate about it. I'm really refreshed by it. And other times it's just dry, 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 dry. It's, and it's, so it's not about the time that you take or how it looks compared to other people. 
but it's just about the practice of it. It might be two minutes to start with. You might get into it and find it's 20 minutes you're able to do it or 45 minutes because of your time that you have. Great. And this practice fuels and it gives us a small taste of the rhythm of the Sabbath. In Genesis chapter 2, we know the story of creation. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And we see it. Um, this is actually the uh, how do I? This is actually the law that has the most explanation of all the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath law is actually the one that God sets aside and gives the best. The you know every other statement and says um, you know you shall not kill. Yeah, pretty straightforward. <laughs> Deuteronomy 2, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Now, keeping it holy was this whole idea um, of being set apart. Of being set apart. And you'll read this. Maybe some of you will go, well, Genesis and Deuteronomy. Well, that's Old Testament, Solomon. We live under the New Covenant. We live under the New Testament, the way of Jesus. Excellent point. In Mark, Matthew chapter 12, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And in Mark chapter 2, the Sabbath was made for man, not for man the Sabbath. Now, we, we get into really dangerous territory here because we often aren't much different to the rule keeper and the religious leaders of, that we'll criticize of the time. Because we'll use the rules and the scriptures for our own positions. But we need to remember that the Sabbath was made for man, not just so that we could do whatever we want, because it was made to be set apart. As a reminder that we are a holy people, that we are a holy people who have been set free from slavery. The people of Egypt coming out of Egypt, they worked their guts out. They worked for Pharaoh doing everything, seven days a week, all of it. No rest. They come out of Egypt and God says, one day rest so that you remember who I am, what I have done. And in that you remember who you are. See, the challenge for us in this day and age, I think and I believe, is that we either live in legalism or we live in freedom. We live in legalism that we hold this law that this is the only way we can do it or we live in this complete freedom saying that, well, the grace of God extends so far it doesn't really matter. Well, actually, I beg to differ because if that's how we see the grace of God, we haven't fully captured the grace of God and we've actually cheapened his grace. And so many of us do it to suit our own purposes. The Sabbath isn't, and so here's where it gets really difficult. The Sabbath isn't about doing all the things we didn't get done in the week. The Sabbath means that we don't pay bills. This is how serious we're getting here. The Sabbath means that it's not a day that we're paying bills. It's not a day that we're doing all the housework. It's not a day that um, the washing or the cleaning now and all the maintenance around the house, that's not what Sabbath is. Breathe now, everyone. Are we still with me? 
Yeah. Now, some of us, we're finding this quite confronting, and that's fine. I'm happy to have a chat with you, happy to have a conversation with you. Go and ask God why you're getting so worked up about it and see what he might say to you. And why is this so important? Because it challenges our sense of value and it challenges our sense of self-importance. And you'll say to me, well, you don't understand how busy I am, Simon. You don't know how much I've got to do. You don't know how much spare space I don't have. No, you're right. Let me rephrase the question for you. We don't actually understand because our inability to stop, to be silent and to walk with God and to be in solitude with God is actually the root of most of our troubles, actually the root of most of our hardships, actually the root of all of our fractures, our division and our disunity. Actually, our inability to stop and be at solitude with God, I would argue, is at the root of the world's obsession with filling up every spare minute improving ourselves or watching something or buying something or scrolling through something. And even more than that, let's strip it back a little bit further when you want to come to me and say you don't understand how busy I am. Let me ask you this question. How much do you trust God with what is not yet done? Because I would argue when we talk about how busy we are, it's actually an indication of how unwilling we are to trust God, that he is at work even when we're not. And we're actually unwilling to surrender to God in his love. I told you to be controversial, didn't I? Eugene Peterson puts it like this. Uh, author, scholar, speaker. Sabbath is not primarily about us or how it benefits us. It is about God and how and his forming of us or how he forms us. I don't see any way out of it. If we are going to live appropriately in the creation, we must keep the Sabbath. It takes adjustment, it takes practice, it takes intent. There will be conversation and there needs to be grace because you know, we've all got to go home and somehow, if we want to do anything with it, you know, I don't know what you'll do with it. You might walk out, scoff and go, well, no thanks. This isn't another to-do list, but a step aside, a reset, a restore, a remembrance, a refocus. And dare I say, can I suggest in this moment, it will also take community. Because even as we've come out of, you know, I know we keep saying it and we keep harming it, but even as we've come out of this COVID and this pandemic, we've actually, there's an increased disconnection from community worship. And I, you, I, you know me long enough that I've been around for, you know, 20 years now. You know that I don't believe the Sunday is the be-all and end-all in our faith. And if all we do is rock up here and say, well, we've done our Christian responsibility and what God has called us to and the work that God wants to do in us in our week, <laughs> that's not what we are either. But this is the difference between legalism 
and grace. Legalism says, I have to be here every week because that's just what we do. That's the rules. That's what the senior pastor has said. Grace says, oh, God understands. I can miss one week. Oh, you know, I don't really feel like it today. Didn't like it last week. The preachers and dropkick. That's the grace that doesn't understand the grace of God. And then we'll talk about, oh, well, our kids aren't around. <laughs> Do you know why? Because parents aren't passionately following Jesus. Do you know why? Because adults get so upset and uptight because they haven't got what they wanted. And they behave like three-year-olds. And we're called to remember the Sabbath that God created to be set apart a holy people. Not a holy person, a holy people with community in his presence. And without being legalistic, we need to rediscover it as God's people because whatever we have made the Sabbath, whatever I have made the Sabbath as a time for doing all the things that we otherwise don't get a chance to do, isn't really cutting it and being a blessing to the rest of the world, is it? And as God's people, we're meant to be the light, the witness and the blessing. And if that's our measure, how are we going? And if we were to be honest, we allow other relationships, other tasks and our own sense of importance to rule us before God. And the Sabbath bears witness to the rhythms, the gifts, the meaning and the purpose in relationship with God. So what are the principles of a biblical Sabbath? Again, it's to stop, to set aside, embrace our limits, recognize that God is on the throne, trust that God is at work, even when we've got the task list. Have you ever gone back to work the next day and realized you haven't got any work to do? I haven't. Even if you tick off the task list for that day, there's always more jobs the next day. Has anyone noticed that? Trust that God is at work. Guess what he's doing while you're sleeping? Just, he's working, maybe. We learn to rest. And that's, we might rest from our work, our physical exhaustion, from hurrying, from multitasking, from making decisions, from catching up on all the things we didn't get done this week. We might rest from technology. Rest. What do you need to rest and to be renewed? Delight in God. Pay attention to the things that we might otherwise rush through. One of the great delights is to be able to stare out a window and watch the rain fall. Sorry, it's one of my great delights. might not be yours. Or to step outside on a freezing cold day when the sun bursts forth and just feel that warmth of the sun on your body. Delight in something that comes from the Creator. Remember, He's put it all in place. He's put something in our hearts. Remember that? God has placed something more expansive in our hearts than we can fully capture or explain. And He gives us these small moments to enjoy it, to experience it, to find rest in it, to receive his promise in it. And we barely do because our lives are so full. And contemplate. 
experience something of a sampling, experience a sampling of something greater than what awaits us because there's going to be a day when we are at complete rest in Jesus, yeah? And we're meant to bear witness to that possibility here and now, yeah? (laughs) We're meant to bear witness to it now. So a Sabbath, it could be, and I think it is, a day every week. It's an invitation into worship. It's an invitation into community as part of Sabbath to be with God. We might consider the vacations, the holidays that we go on as rest, where we don't have to worry about routine, where we disconnect from business, activity, or um, even our technology. Where We might spend a day or two apart. And it takes planning. It takes conversation. It takes partnerships, friendships. It takes preparation and practice and a deepening relationship. It might be that we've been serving in ministry and we need to take a sabbatical to deepen a mature relationship with the Lord. Even if we're doing things around for the church. And there's this crazy concept that the world has actually taken a hold of called long service leave. Even the world understands that this is necessary. So it might be that we take a break. So the daily office or the weekly Sabbath, the daily office and the weekly Sabbath helps us practice a larger vision of God's promise in small ways. The daily office or a weekly Sabbath helps us practice a larger vision of God's promise in small ways. I can't remember where I read this. I don't know if this is Pete Scazzaro's quote or not. I'm sorry. We have been called out of a world trying to prove its worth and value by what it does or possesses. We are deeply loved by God for who we are, not for what we do. Now, there's things that we have to do, yeah? There's plenty in Scripture that also says, you know, you're made to work. No doubt. You're made for family. No doubt. All those things fill up our days. But gee, it's a whole lot better when we know who we are. So the question, I'm just going to ask this question and then we're just going to go in a minute silence just allowing God to come in and welcome him and just sit in his presence and to know his love. Will we trust God enough to stop?